Good evening and welcome to Psychedelic Healing. I am your host, Sonia Cotto, nurse anesthesiologist and mental health advocate. Today I have here with me is Richard Scaife. He is co-founder and partner of The Conscious Fund, investing in the next generation of global companies that's focused on solving the world's mental health and addiction challenges using psychedelic medication and treatments. He also serves as the director and chair of Microdose, the largest media and events company for the psychedelic medicine sector, and is an advisor to the Psychedelic Medicine Association. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Oh, I love everything that you're doing. Mental health treatments have been stagnant here, and the options are just minimal for many, many years. And finally, you know, you with the Conscious Fund are actually putting investment into the real future of mental health and treatment, which is psychedelics. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's been an incredible movement. I think we were, you know, very, very fortunate to to join quite early on in, in this movement, and it's changed quite significantly since you know late twenty nineteen when we started to look at the space, and early twenty twenty, uh, you know, when we got very actively involved and we. We invested into companies, you know, which are now pretty well known. So the Sybins and the Atides and the Gilgameshes of this world, um, and many more. And you're right. Um, I mean, we faced an innovation dead spot for quite some time in terms of new treatments, and certainly psychedelics are not a panacea or complete enough to happiness for everyone and a silver bullet. But they do offer a, a real chance of hope for for a lot of people who have simply not found treatments which have been uh, effective for them. Uh, it's been great to have the privilege of working in this space um, since this new sector started to emerge. And, and that's not sort of doing a disservice to the decades of work which has gone before it. And I always try to be very conscious of the, the shoulders of the giants that you stand on, because if it wasn't for people who have taken enormous risks with their liberty and their reputation, the sector as we see it now, which is still only a very, very tiny sector, just simply wouldn't exist. Right. Yeah. They did a lot of the research and the groundwork and the battles that we uh, are experienced the fruitfulness of now. You know, so we definitely owe it to them, the originals that uh, have sacrificed a lot. Um, but you haven't all re- always been in the psychedelic space. You have a history of music and technology. How did that transition? that you were called towards psychedelics. Quite beautifully, actually. The world of music that I was involved with was electronic music. <laughs> it's fair to say that, you know, the two have uh, proven to be interesting bedfellows. And actually, I mean, that to me goes back over two decades. And actually seeing incredible amounts of societal change through psychedelics um, being present in the electronic music scene. And what do I mean by that? You know, two examples. The UK had a terrible problem with football hooliganism. And for your American uh, listeners who are not familiar with the concept, this is where people go to football matches, not really to watch the match, but just to fight with other people. And they were organized into what you would call gangs. Um, and, you know, it was hugely problematic. It, it drew so many people in from their late teens and their early 20s. And this became you know, their societal group. And these were their peers. 
and it wrecked havoc um, into the sport of football. And, you know, city centres were not pleasant places to be if there was a football match uh, taking place because it would also lead to uh, riots and all sorts of really, really unpleasant activity. Wow. And then electronic music started to find its way into culture. And a lot of these guys, and they were always guys, got into the rave scene. Um, and I saw people who were deeply unpleasant football hooligans, so I knew through the areas that I'd grown up, become really balanced, normal people, all of a sudden. And actually, football hooligans were very rarely racist. There was actually, but they were homophobic. Absolutely. You know, they were misogynist. But these people started to change their beliefs. And I would see people out at after parties, which were predominantly for the gay community, being frequented by people who had long histories and backgrounds of football hooliganism. And all of a sudden, they'd had this awakening and enlightening, had left that world behind them. And they all attribute getting involved in rave culture as to why they left gang culture. And then the, the other example of that is in Northern Ireland. And I remember many, many years ago doing a show in Northern Ireland, and it was a very big venue, concert-style venue. And at the very beginning of the evening, I remember saying to myself, you know, is it a predominantly Protestant or Catholic crowd that we can expect? So, no, it's actually quite mixed. I said, well, that, I said, but from what I know, um, they don't have mixed clubs. I said, no, this is one of the very few occasions where there is mixed. He said, so how it will work is at the beginning of the evening, the left-hand side of the, the room, they, that, would be, that would be Catholic. And the right-hand side of the room, that would be Protestant, and there'll be an almost invisible wall. And these people could... Um, oh, tell, you know, there's no difference in, uh, to me, uh, there's no difference in their looks, their appearances, Caucasians, but they could identify each other through the, the variance in their religion. And they would have this invisible divide and they wouldn't mix. And then about half past 12, 1 a.m. in the morning, as the night progressed, there started to be co-mingling. And then, you know, friendship circles started to be formed outside of those uh, environments. People started to realize, well, perhaps they're not as bad as, as being laid out. So it actually brought people together. And I do feel that a lot of the peace which was found with, with younger people in those communities was actually through their involvement in rave culture. And for the very first time, actually meeting and, you know, socializing and dancing with people who, who came from a slightly different variation of the same uh, religious group. Um, so that was, you know, 20 years ago um, in, in tech, um, one of my biggest successes and at the same time failures uh, was an app called DigiPill, which came out at the same time as Calm and Headspace. Calm and Headspace are almost rewritten history because most people think of them as American companies, but they're not. They actually originated from the UK and they're both very successful multi-billion dollar formats. But there was a moment in time where there was three meditation apps who used to fight for the number one spot, and I was one of them. And they got on a plane and raised significant amounts of venture capital, and you know now there are two of them. And actually, for me, that then led into a, a career in, in venture capital. But I always go back to what we were trying to achieve then. I think we pushed the first version of DigiPill out probably 10 years ago, which was destigmatizing mental health. And we did that by making the product look cool. And even if you go onto Instagram today 
and search the hashtag DigiPill, you will find people putting screenshots of a mental health app onto their profile and talking about the fact that it's cool and it's helped them, and it looks really nice. So we kind of felt that the best way of destigmatizing using a mobile app to help your mental health was to place really high quality design front and center of that proposition and make it cool and then make people talk about it. And for me, the the eureka moment of that business was not when we got to 50,000 downloads or 100,000 downloads or when Stephen Fry tweeted about it or when Apple uh, you know, did a feature on it. It was when people were taking screenshots and putting it on their Instagram mm. because they're actually saying, I'm using a mental health app and I've got no shame in the fact that I'm using a mental health app. So that, for me, that led to a career in venture capital. I became very disillusioned in the, the areas that I was investing into and kind of reflected in terms of where and how I got the most sort of meaning in my own life. And that was the work that I did with, with Digipil. And, and when I was introduced to Henri, who's my co-founding partner at the Conscious Fund, I actually hadn't joined the dots. Um, I'd already had significant amounts of impacts and understanding from seeing psychedelics in action, delivered significant amounts of talking therapy to probably millions of people through DigiPill. Uh, but I've never realized that when you combine the two, there's an immensely powerful force. So when he spoke to me about it, and originally I'd gone in purely to sort of look at, you could sort of structure things, so, you know, doing all of the, the sort of the, the sort of the boring stuff as it is. I just sort of had that eureka moment. I was like, oh my God, it's there. It's in plain sight. I've already been doing this. How can I get involved? And that was four years ago. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's been oh, what it seems like it's so long. There's been yeah. so much going on in the last four years. It, it, it has. You know, and I think some of the things that we, we touched on and talked about very, very early on were viewed as being unrealistic, unachievable goals in the next decade. And those are goals which have already been achieved. So, you know, what's been happening in, you know, the, the US states at a state level was stuff which was not even on the agenda. You know, there was people committing huge amounts of time and energy to it, but it hadn't started to really manifest through the, you know, the political process. So it's been really incredible to see things which we talked about as nice to have actually now being um, achievable and you know you look at the uh, the work that's being done in the ketamine centers you look at the success that johnson and johnson have had with sprovato uh, you look how close that maps are you look at you know last year we had the fda or wonderland deliver a keynote to the psychedelic medicine industry on how you can have a better working relationship with the fda and there was always this bogeyman being perceived of the regulator doesn't want to help these medicines come to market. you know. And when they're prepared to stand on a stage and talk to the industry about how they can actually get these medicines to the market, I think that shows an absolute willingness to, to, to help. So, you know, I think for me, those are, those were really important. Yeah. It's been quite the transition because even when I began you know, well, you started in 2019. 2019 is actually when I discovered, because I've been doing anesthesia, I've been using ketamine for years before discovering its its use in mental health, you know, and then in 2020, and even still now, I'm educating and teaching 
different providers, psychiatrists, therapists, it's used because there is still that stigma, that the resistance to try anything outside of the pharmaceutical um, options. Absolutely. And I think, you know, this is a, a big challenge um, that we, we're still going to come up against. You know, sort of preventative and functional medicine is is not taught to MDs, GPs um, at this this day. Novel and new uh, mechanisms of care uh, are not taught to psychiatrists and psychologists. Um, you know, I brought a, a friend of mine over from Malta who's a British psychologist. He's got something like fifty thousand hours of practice and, and works among the most complex cases and individuals. He had no awareness at all before he met me of psychedelics, and he's actually heavily involved in PTSD and trauma. He kind of knew about it. So this is an incredible, very open-minded guy, you know, was comfortable getting on a plane from our little island here, traveling all the way to Miami to find out more about it. Had a wonderful time, but it's like, nobody's talking about this. You know, I'm I'm a PTSD and trauma expert, and this is just not being talked about. And I, I think this is going to be, you know, one of the big sort of futures of, of modality that we, we use, but it's just not being talked about. So there's a huge amount of work which still needs to be done with, with medical practitioners, with regulators. And I think sometimes um, in, the, in the Western world, we perceive that we are so much further ahead than than all the other than all the other markets. It's like, no. I mean, if you look at indigenous communities, this has been yeah. you know, this has been used for yeah. But even Middle Eastern markets, um, you know, a conference very recently on on this category, uh, and I have a team at the moment who are looking at opening, you know, psychedelic it's me centric uh, propositions in jurisdictions where people would perceive that this will simply never happen, where market access has already been granted for products like Spravato. And, you know, it's it's incredible that that these things are happening and just things that I don't think we perceive would happen so quickly. Yeah. And even with all the, you know, obviously 2020 with COVID was uh Definitely a big hit to the the world, but really just through mental health out into the forefront, you know, yes. and where people didn't yeah. talk about it, they talked about it. So even with your app, the DigiPill, you know, that was the fact that you got so much traction back then. Imagine its opportunity now, you know, where yeah. is that? All these apps are coming out, you know, even different therapy apps and all that. My my concern and my question is in the future of psychedelics. We have this amazing, you know, Rick Dobla did such amazing work with maps and we're, you know, rolling out now the, the the scheduling change for MDMA and therapy, but where do you see the future? My concern is where are all these practitioners going to be trained and how are we going to provide the amount of trained specialists? Well, it's, it's a really good point. Um, one of the, the shortcomings uh, felt that the venture capital community has um, made towards its service of this industry category. I try and avoid using the word industry category. Mm-hmm. Industry always sounds a bit sinister. Um, but this category is that they've not looked at it as a whole. And some people have been absolutely obsessed with only investing into biotech and next chemical entities. And I, but, well, this is great. I, I can understand your 
your perception around, you know, the alpha, the return that you'll make from, uh, you know, uh, being a very early investor into a blockbuster drug. But where are these clinics that people uh, are going to go to? Uh, who's going to train those therapists? And how are people going to find those clinics? Who's lobbying insurance companies? Who's talking to doctors to to make referrals? Who's doing all of this? Because if you are fortunate enough to be involved in a category at its very, very early stages, got to try and look at it like a whole. Because if you don't have all of those pieces ready to be joined together, something will undoubtedly fall over. And I think you know, training, there's some great groups out there, you know, well capitalized, uh, developing, you know, and delivering uh, training programs. I've been fortunate enough to be involved with a team who are putting healing commercial real estate, you know, and that will be a way that um, clinic providers and clinicians can get access to real estate, which is fit for purpose. Because without all of those things, it is going to make it really, really difficult for a new chemical entity uh, to come into the market and be successful. So yeah, there's there's still an enormous amount of work which which has to be done, and we we've got to look at the, the psychedelic medicine category, you know, as a whole, not just uh, you know our individual molecules. Right, because even for my clinic, I would love to offer uh, all modalities as they become legalized. Right now, I have ketamine, um, which we're doing amazing work with, but there are some patients that still continue to struggle, and then will need you know, further different medicines to go a little bit deeper or work on different receptors in the brain. Um, but how, as a clinician, will I be able to offer it? And, you know, because some of the medicines last so long, eight to 12 hours, depending, how do you provide a trained therapist, um, psychiatrist, or any um, facilitator to sit with a patient for that long and then continue to provide that the next day and the next day after that? That's very tolling and taxing on the mind you know i think it is and i mean down to the way that the, you know the physical location is is set up uh the, the the sort of pre-support work which has to be done the post-support work which has to be done the the duration of the actual trip itself um so there, there's a lot of stuff that's called the, the protocol layer which heavily impacts on the the economics um around accessing these treatments um and I do think that's, you know, in the future, I don't think we're there yet because this is going to take a leap of faith for people to get comfortable with it. There will be technology which can support that, you know, so you're not totally reliant on having, say, you know, two therapists in the room. One of them could be a trained therapist. The other can be a highly intelligent um, tool which is monitoring the patient, which I also think will will take away, you know, some of the issues that we've experienced with regards to um, you know, potential for abuse. So there, there is undoubtedly going to be a role that technology will will start to play in the sector in the future. With the biotech companies, and then the ones that you, um, you know, for example, Cyban, the Gilgamesh, and and others, when they are looking for, you know, they're trying to create their own molecules their own uh, medicines similar to what we have in just plain medicine, like the psilocybins, MDMAs, and whatnot. Um, are you privy to their goals for these? Is it shorter duration of action and what their um, 
what their goals are for making these substances that technically already exist naturally? They evolved. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that nearly every biotech company that we invested into very early on does not have the same endpoints of success at this this juncture now. It's a process of iteration. You know, for us, it's about looking at very smart, passionate people and backing them very early with a realization that, you know, what they're looking at right now may not be what they're looking at 12 months from now. I mean, there are undoubtedly different scales. They, they do range from people who's got, you know, faster duration, uh, faster acting, uh, the ability to be more um, effective through the, the way that it's, uh, uh, it's, it's ingested. Um, but there are people also, you know, looking to call on different set pathways, develop whole new fields of consciousness. There are people who are developing non-psychedelic psychedelics. Which I think we've settled on plastogens as being the as the term of phrase. Yeah, I like that. Which I think my, my view for for therapy is the trick is an important part of it. I have this part of the journey. Um, I think where those medicines will will be will be really interesting and really important is when we're looking at things like stroke recovery, when we're looking at things like dementia, so neurodegenerative um, illnesses. That's where you really want to play with that molecule, and, and you don't want um, the the trip to to be part of it. But for when you're working, um, you know, in, in the mental health and addiction field, you know. I, I think that's going to be a really important part of it. Certainly, if you're working in the addiction field and you're working with something like an ibogaine, then you want to be looking at um, how you can increase the safety profile of that. And that's where there's the validity in terms of not tinkering with the the trip, but tinkering with solely uh, you know the cardiovascular issues that can occur uh, with with ibogaine, increasing the safety protocol. But yeah, that's. You know, and there are a lot of companies are all looking at doing very, very similar things super early on in this space, but most of them have evaporated. You know, the ones who uh, were the most legitimate and the ones who got the most serious scientists um, and experienced management teams are the ones who are still around today. A few of them are actually being funded through the Conscious Fund, so you've definitely done a lot of work. And how do you decide when you're going through the conscious fund, because you, there are so many, obviously, in this um, field of psychedelic medicine, all these funds, I mean, all these companies are probably coming in at it. And how do you actually evaluate the the companies and decide their, you know, their future success and what is something that you want to put your money towards? So first of all, we don't make a decision um, as non-scientists on science. Um, we, we have scientific support and scientific advice. Okay. And sometimes the, the depth of the report will vary from a very detailed sort of critical analysis to one-liners saying, no way, junk, to others, wow, there is definitely something here. And what usually happens is it's a very senior scientific person from the organization having a conversation with one of our um, elected scientific advisors. Uh, we keep management and entrepreneurs out of that conversation, so it's not a sales process, and they're, they're nerding on the science. And then we look at that 
And then really you're, you're looking at the, the entrepreneurs and their passion and their conviction um, and, and try to understand why they wanted to get into this space. Um, I think most people who are coming into this space now, extremely well-meaning. It's a very hard market to raise capital in, and you've got to have true amount of conviction. In 2020, in the early part of 2020, it really did feel like all you had to do was put a picture of a mushroom on the front of your deck, borrow some wording from other people's decks, stick a few names on there, talk about a reverse takeover, listing it in Canada, and we're all going to make a load of money, and you would raise a couple of million bucks. Thankfully, uh, we we managed to uh, you know avoid those those type of companies. Um, so you know we, we always kind of go back to those sort of fundamentals from a scientific perspective. These businesses will evolve; they go on a journey of discovery. They're very very early on, and you know are the scientific people smart enough to identify that they've got a challenge and a problem with their initial approach? Are they pragmatic? You know, can they can they weather criticism, critique? You know, will they make amends or will they just continue blindly down a path and eventually you know, the trial candidate fails? Or can they, you know, can they be quite agile? And then quality of management. And, you know, if, if somebody is telling me that, you know, ultimately their ambition is to be acquired by a big pharma company and, you know, their previous background was a tech entrepreneur, you know, running a small social network it's not that believable because you know they don't understand the culture of big pharma companies they don't have any relationships with m&a teams they don't know necessarily what they're looking for they're not following their their own drug development programs so you kind of take that with a with a pinch of salt not to say that they can't achieve it but it's just a little bit less likely um, from a probability perspective if the individual has spent most of their career inside Big Pharma, and they've bounced around different departments, and they've been responsible for bringing drug tracks into market. You know, and they've had a company being previously acquired by them. Then it starts to look a uh, lot more promising. Doesn't mean that they're not going to still have failure because the failure could take part in the, the clinical side, and unlikely, you know, during due diligence that you know big medium pharma companies going to want to acquire, uh, you know, something which is ultimately going to cost them a lot of money and fail. Um, they do, but uh, they try and avoid it. You know, and that starts to then be more believable. And then I think the third thing really is: do you like these people? You know, do you do you get on with them? You know, do you, do you feel inspired by them? And uh, do you kind of enjoy working with them? You could well be, you know, on a journey with them for longer than some marriages last. You know, you kind of want, that. and that's hard to quantify. Because sometimes they can be incredibly arrogant, in, incredibly driven, incredibly strong-willed, and you know that could that can sort of rub you up the wrong way. But then you've got to sort of look at that and say, look, they've got passion, they've got drive, they've got real conviction. I kind of like that. Probably wouldn't want to have a you know a beer with them. That'd probably drive me you know to distraction. But I kind of see that what they've got there as a as a quality. And the other thing is you're trying to. You're trying to watch for where you're you're being fed BS. And there was a company very, very early on. I won't name them, but I got to see the CEO of a business who was in London just before the pandemic uh, really sort of kicked in. And in their deck, they talked about 
a number of achievements and significant amounts of intellectual property that they held. And, uh, you know, as I was sort of wrapping up to them, I said, where's next? Where are you traveling to next? And they gave them the name of the country where they're going to. And I said, oh, what are you going there for? I said, oh, it's to sign all the IP deals. Thinking to myself, my name I really what you've already got in your deck and you're 85% of the way into your financing and you haven't signed them. I mean, as it happened, they did sign them. But for me, that was just like, if I'd call you out on that, what else is true? And, uh, you know, we shied away from that. We'll probably make quite a bit of money on it if we'd have exited at the right stage. But I, I just felt it was such a big, you know, you're always, I think, quite forgiving of, of people being overly optimistic in their sales figures overly optimistic with their, their clinical pipelines. But when something so fundamental as core intellectual property of your business is yet to be fully absorbed by your business, but you're representing to investors and you've taken money off them, then that for me was just like, ah, sorry, not something we can uh, we can get involved with. Yeah, integrity is very, very important. And especially in a conscious fund when you're doing a lot of hard work. Um, we did talk a lot about the business aspect of it and the, the medicinal, the pharmaceutical, but your, you know, the conscious fund also does a lot of education pieces, you know, as founder or co-founder of Microdose, you know, you have the Wonderland education piece, this conference that's happening in a few weeks here, but also the third wave, you know, I honestly have been using them as a resource for patients because obviously second, you know, psilocybin is illegal and people want questions and ask about microdosing and what are different, you know, different questions about psychedelics that I've been using the third wave you know, as yeah, we used to give to patients. Yeah, I think we were one of the very early investors in the third wave, and they do a brilliant job of the, the consumerization of, of psychedelic medicine and, and access. And actually, in many ways, was kind of the inspiration for us helping to create Microdose because we kind of looked at it and said, right, got a number of, you know, media properties who are doing an amazing job in terms of communicating this to mass populace. Who's talking about this as a sector? Um, and, you know, as the world was in its first spin of the lockdown, we did our very first virtual event. And I always look back at it, very, very humbled. You know, its purpose was actually to raise the profile of a number of the companies we'd already invested into. So that was Ibid and uh, Gilgamesh and, and Atai and Diamond, Third Wave, uh, Bexham. So I thought, well, we've got a couple of friends. So we may well have, you know, seven or eight speakers at its virtual event. Nobody's ever really been to one of those before. If 50 people come along, we've done really, really well. And, you know, they then, you know, one of those speakers would say, it'd be great if you had a panel on this. Can I invite so-and-so, so-and-so? And then that person would say, it'd be really great if we had a panel on this, if I could invite this person. And before we knew it, we ended up settling on north of 105 speakers the event ended up running for two days. We had between twelve and fourteen hundred people come along to the first virtual event. I was sat in my lounge uh, when I was living in London at about four, five o'clock in the morning at a virtual Zoom after party with Rick Doblin as he was smoking his bog and <laughs> showing people uh, stories of his life and uh, what he'd done. And I mean, it was an awful moment in time. And in terms of where we all were, and pretty much everybody in the world was locked down at the time. Nobody had started to, to ease restrictions. 
but it really brought everybody together. It was it's so encouraging to see so many people at the chat window who'd been looking at this as a potential sort of career path, you know, young people doing their PhDs, uh, and sort of settling. And this is the area that we wanted to work in. We'd see this amazing, um, you know, sense of community. And then getting emails from people after the event saying, thanks so much for putting this event on. I met a group of investors. I raised a significant sum of money for my company. And it's all thanks to attending your 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 virtual event. I found one in one of the, I think it was one of the Slack channels we were running. So like things that we never anticipated were going to happen ended up happening, which was really a lot of our motivation for bringing Wonderland to life. And it was like, listen, we had to do it as a virtual event then, but you know, we know that these forums are so important. Why don't we take the jump and, and see if we can be the first out of the traps to palm a you know large event, which is predominantly for people who are working in the category, but also includes people who are advocates from community, uh, from a religious background, from military background. Let's not exclude anybody. But let's focus this in on people who are working in the category. And it's been really fascinating to see at those events. You know, like the first event, a lot of people, you know, were working in more conventional sort of drug discovery companies. So, you know, they've been working with CNS medicine. They're now in the psychedelic space. First day at the conference, they turn up in a suit. And, yes. you know, they're seeing people walking around with like <laughs> color and uh, costumes. And then later that afternoon, they'd reappear. And they were like, oh, this is so refreshing. And I know I'm not supposed to say this because I'm at a business conference, but I'm really enjoying myself. Can I get an extra ticket for my wife? Because I actually think she'd be fascinated to learn what I'm doing. I'd never invite her to one of my normal conferences because you would just be so bored. I think she's going to really enjoy this. And then they would turn up with their partner on the next day. And that's what we really wanted to create with that format was, you know, something which is fun and immersive and educational, but but at the same time where people come together and, and business, uh, you know, business gets done. And there's been so many great businesses and companies and venture capital funds, which have all been, um, you know, incubated um, and, you know, inside the, the Wonderland event and, and, and and many, many teams, especially at the first event, were meeting for the first time. Oh, that was my first conference, actually. My first yeah. psychedelic conference was there in Wonderland. But these are these are people who've worked together in the virtual setting and they've never actually physically met their, you know, their their team members. And I remember um, Josh, who's the editor in chief at uh, that now uh, Psychedelics Alpha and Graham. Um, who's one of uh, you know very well known attorneys in the space? Graham said to me, uh, he said, "Oh, have you seen Josh yet?" I said, "No, I don't think he's arrived." He says, "I'm so looking forward to meeting him." I said, "You've never met?" He said, "No, never met." You know, we've had this virtual relationship, and you know, he did all of this you know amazing content. Uh, you know, uh, but yeah, we we've never ever met. And uh, I walked to the front door and I wait for Josh to arrive, and I took him in and I said, "Graham, Josh." meet each other together for the first time and there was so many of those things happening and that was really beautiful to see yeah no the camaraderie and yes seeing business venture capitalists shamans and medical professionals i was a, i'm a clinician 
you know, it was just a mosh posh of everyone and it was all about. And I think it shows people can coexist. There, there was a lot of healthy skepticism about the role that venture capital can play in this space. Um, we don't have the best reputation as a, as a sector. Um, some of it's deserved, some of it I think is undeserved. Um, you always got to look at what somebody's sort of true north is. Um, but, you know, it did show that people can sort of coexist and there'll be huge amounts of respect and people have got a willingness to learn. And one of the most amazing things that I actually saw at the first Wonderland was uh, an ex-Navy SEAL who'd come off stage and a medicinal chemist had gone over to them to talk to them um, about, you know, how PTSD manifests, what it feels like. Uh, and then this ex-Navy SEAL was asking with this, I was, by the way, I was just listening in on this conversation, <laughs> fascinating, was explaining how they create medicines and how these things get, you know, come to market. Um, and they, they left with like this amazing sort of respect to each other. And they said, you know, thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for everything you're doing. And I just thought to myself, in what bar in America would you find an ex-Navy SEAL and a medicinal chemist having I mean, this type of conversation? You know, that. So it's kind of moments all very special. Well, and then there is a market for everyone. You know, there are the, yes, the biotech companies, people are, you know, the traditional um, medicine, the plant medicine community doesn't like the biotech companies. And there's that, I've, I experienced it actually at the, at the Wonderland conference. I saw, you know, different conversations in that, but there is a space for everyone because there is going to be the community that goes to the plant medicine, but then there's the community yeah. that goes to the clinics and want the non, you know, they they want the psychedelic benefits without the psychedelic experience. Though, like you, I agree that the experience is very important. Yeah, I mean, there's space for everyone. Mean, the thing. I think some people go off on a journey and that, you know, that journey can, can start through watching a Netflix program, going down a rabbit hole into YouTube, and they think, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go further into this. And I'm going to go to Peru. And this is, and that's their calling. But I think you have to remember that most people have been trained uh, to go and have a conversation with their MD. That's what they've been taught. You know, and there was a moment in time, not necessarily such an American thing, but certainly some, some you know, some sort of countries where, where doctors were viewed as gods. They had these extraordinary powers. And, you know, what they said went. They were never wrong, never questioned you know, so there's a lot of ingrained belief in terms of the significance of what your doctor tells you. So most people will follow that path in terms of having a conversation. What we've got to try and ensure is that, you know, when they present uh, to that doctor, that doctor has been informed because we cannot rely on the training that they've not had. Got to give them the resources and the information. And, you know, I think a lot has changed. If you were to go into a doctor a few years ago, unless it was the most enlightened one, and say, I want to access MDMA, you know, for, for my trauma, they, they would throw you out. It's a drug dealer. You know, this, what do you think this place is? Now I think there's a really good chance that the response would be, oh, well, it's actually very close to being approved. I've seen a documentary on it quite recently. I don't know everything about it, but I'm learning. And, and I've seen that with, with certainly younger medical professionals. They may not necessarily spark the conversation, but when they know what I'm involved with, they will start to ask questions and they've read, you know, 
the Michael Pollan books, and they they you know they started to have their their alternative um, learning sources. So you know th- those are going to be really important pathways, and we've got to put as much focus and energy in terms of supporting people who want to access their traditional methods and and not cheapen somebody's experience in a leisure setting or a festival. Those can be life-changing moments for those people and take them on a very different direction in life and not for us. And I say this as somebody who's a biotech investor to, to cheapen those experiences or to demean somebody following a less conventional route and not always right in the modern Western medical framework. Um, but a large majority of people will follow you know, the more conventional routes and we've got to make sure that those medical practitioners well-versed in these new modalities and can make referrals you know, to the appropriate sources. And we also have to remember, this is a global world and healthcare is not the same as it is in the US in many, many other places in the world. So, you know, so healthcare differs so significantly. And we always try and balance that conversation because I think there's a risk you know, no disrespect to my Americans, but we believe that it's the same everywhere, isn't it? No, it's not. It's fundamentally done really, really differently. You've got some good bits, you've got some bad bits. The same for everywhere else. So that's a big part of learning that, you know, market access is not going to be achieved in the same way in every single country in the world. Forget about, you know, people going to the, the original routes and the, you know, the social routes, just the medical routes are going to be fundamentally different in so many different countries and if you are bringing a therapeutic to market you know your job to your shareholders and to the patients you want to care for is to get that therapeutic into as many markets as possible and i'm still gobsmacked when uh, i found myself reading johnson and johnson's bravato guidelines in arabic for the saudi arabian market <laughs> where market access be, where market access has been achieved you know, so I think it starts off with education too you know we have especially uh, a lot of my patients at the clinic they come to me not they don't get the referral from their doctors we reach out to their doctors and it's when the patients are educated and they're informed they have a say in their health you know they reach out yeah, to their I, doctors and, and I think this is one of the, uh, the very few classes of medicine where patients really do want to be informed. They go off on a journey of discovery. So accuracy of information is really, really important. But you know, God forbid, you know, you were, you know, needing oncology treatments. The likelihood of you going away and reading many books on the subject and watching a series on Netflix and diving into videos on YouTube before you accepted that oncology treatment is really low. But this is really unique in that, you know, patients do very similar thing to, you know, to new emerging categories such as longevity medicines, where people become really, really absorbed in, you know, the, the science before they actually, uh, you know, activate. Wow. We have covered so much ground. This has been such an amazing talk. You have been transformational in the psychedelic space 
um, with the conscious font, <laughs> with microdose. Tried to do my bit. <laughs> oh, no, when I had the opportunity to knowing that I was going to talk to you, I just remember my first microdose Wonderland conference, you being on stage talking, I'm like, I get to interview him. <laughs> you know, it was definitely very eye-opening, my first experience, and I look forward to it every year. You know, um, for the listeners out there, if you're interested, Microdose Wonderland Conference is uh, a few weeks away, November 9th through the 11th in Miami. You can actually uh, check out our description below. You can have a website, and I will be having a discount code if you want some uh, some tickets there. Uh, but if you want to learn and just meet so many different people from clinicians to shamans to investors, biotech, any anything that you could imagine is possible there at the Wonderland Conference. So thank you so much, Richard. Pleasure. Yeah, no, I mean, just to sort of wrap on, on that, uh, I, I made a very interesting friendship um, at the last Wonderland with my Uber driver um, who was dropping me off. She said, oh, what's this? I said, it's a psychedelic medicine conference. So you're not going to believe this. She says, I'm actually a doctor uh, and I'm not practicing at the moment because I'm kind of a bit of disillusioned. And I've always wanted to to look at psychedelic medicine as a uh, <laughs> as a way of helping people. I said, well, wow, that's incredible. She says, do you, do you know the people who are organizing it? <laughs> I'm organizing it. <laughs> she said, I'd love to come in. And I was like, well, let's swap numbers. And she's now gone and she's working in the psychedelic medicine space. That's I mean, what a calling. I mean, the calling was the Uber app. <laughs> uh, a beautiful connection. A beautiful connection. But I think just to, you know, to encourage your listeners and your viewers, it is a show which is designed for everybody to take something away. We have three stages. Um, you can dip in and out different conversations. You know, if you want to get really nerdy on the science, that's there for you. If you want to look at it as sort of a political and a social and economic uh, perspective or an investment perspective, that's there for you as well. Um, and that's what we sort of really pride ourselves on is just the, you know, the diversity of the range of conversations that we include. Yes. Yeah. The, the connections I've made have been uh, still today, you know, very close friendships and colleagues and business uh, associations have been made through Wonderland. So thank you. Wonderful. Look, look forward to seeing you in Miami very soon. Oh, wonderful. Yes. You have a safe flight over. Thank you. Well, that is a wrap. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. This is the end of this week's dose of psychedelic healing. You have a beautiful night.